about merit. In fact, just a slight point of language first, that um, <coughs> uh, the, the word tambun in Thai, which is, is usually translated as making merit, as a particularly um, Thai, Thai idiom, which is, is not found in the same form in, in Pali language. Anyway, the... Um, the word punya which, which is so difficult to translate and, and merit is not really um, an adequate translation at all but no one's been able to come up with a better one um, is, is explained as meaning that which purifies the mind that which cleanses the mind so any action of body, speech or mind which, which produces a cleansing or an uplifting of the mind um, is, is merit, is punya. Now, um, whenever that uplifting, that uh, cleansing of the mind takes place, there is almost always um, a pleasant feeling, a happy feeling. So sometimes that, that, that aspect, that, that, uh, the, the tone, that feeling happy, feeling tone which accompanies that cleansing is, is emphasized in, in speaking of, of, of merit. Um, the Buddha said that, that merit um, is, arises um, through giving, um, through keeping precepts um, and through mental cultivation. And the uh, mental cultivation or pavana is the most powerful kind of merit. Now, now in Thai society we find that the, the first of those three, the, the giving, um, has been emphasized, um, we might say to the, at the expense of the other two, which means we have a very generous um, society, um, but one in which there, there hasn't been as much emphasis as might be on, on uh, mental cultivation or even keeping precepts. So when people say they're going to make merit, what they usually mean is they're going to make offerings um, at, at a temple. So it's a kind of a narrowing of, of the idea. But the, the idea of accumulation of merit um, is not... Uh, is not wrong in itself and it's, 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 an, um, it's a power let's say of, of goodness and a, um, and a, a, um, a goodness yes we can just in that sense refer to a, as an accumulation of goodness I think would be if someone acts in, um, in, in kind generous um, thoughtful wise ways then it becomes a habit a good habit habit of goodness and, and that is a, something which will be a, um, a significant causal factor um, in, the, uh, in rebirth so um, the, the extent to which the, the mental stream is purified is the extent to which uh, um, a good rebirth will take place so that sense of accumulation of merit, it's, it's a little bit of a strange way of of talking about it, I think, but but uh, it does refer to an actual process, a purification process, which has significant karmic results. That would be my. So so when I was talking about it as a gem, it was more like how it how how it feels when you realise that all the good things you've done in the past are, are not lost because by bringing them to mind, you just immediately you can feel that that there's something very beautiful inside you that's been, uh, that has been accumulated in the sense it's not been lost. And, and as I say, something that even took place when, when you were a child now, if you think about it, I'm sure you'll, uh, you again, you'll feel really kind of proud of yourself in a good way, you know, that that was a really a beautiful thing to have done. And, um, yeah.
Yes. teaching I think applicable to to raising children um, is that of um, like planting a tree um, and then that is that uh, in planting a tree you know there are certain things that you can take responsibility for um, and certain things that you can't so you plant a tree uh, you choose the right good place for it to um, to be planted you water it you you protect it and so on but the um, that tree will grow um, grow quickly or grow slowly, the fruits are, are, are sweet, or that's not something that you can control. So the idea there are certain things that you can take responsibility for and certain things that you, you can't, and don't try to take responsibility of things that you can't. So, um, you know, there, there doesn't seem to me, I, I have you know, so many parents and so many people, I, I can't always see, um, you know, a clear causal process between good parenting and, and beautiful children. Sometimes, you know, people who seem to put the, the, do the best, you know, sometimes they have the... Uh, so there, there are sort of karmic uh, forces involved here as well. But the idea is, you know, your, what's your intention? Now, when, when we think about it, your intention is to raise your children in the best you can. Um, and you have limitations. And every now and again, you just reach that point where you where you lose it. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, has their their limit. All these, I'm mean, sure, I'm not sure whether these type people are really so so critical or not. But if they are, I mean, I'm sure that they have their, you know, their limitations as well. And they every now and again they lose it with their children. I don't know anybody who who doesn't at some point. But you know, your, re your refuge is well, um, you're really trying your best. Um, to communicate with your children and not to lose it, but every now once again, once in the blue moon, everything gets on top of you. And then, okay, well afterwards, you try and you learn from that and say, well, is there anything I could have done differently, or could I have seen some early warning signs before I completely lost it? And so this idea of just learning from mistakes and not expecting yourself to be a perfect mother and not comparing yourself with other people they think oh she's so much she's so much better than I am and so on There's, or you know they don't have to be um, a special way for in the, in the eyes of other people but I think that um, again the, the, the sense of development of of mindfulness is one in which you're becoming more and more sensitive to yourself and so 
when strong negative emotions are starting to arise, you have this kind of early warning system where you realize you're starting to get really tense and now it's maybe just time just to draw back a little bit and just to, uh, you know. Uh, so I think that the mindfulness is a way of, of um, keeping things on track. But the, the, the other point I make is that in, in Buddhism we, we make a distinction between shame and guilt. Shame itself is, is not so, it's a bit difficult word in, in, in English even, but in, in, in Buddhist psychology, shame is considered to be a positive or a wholesome mental state, and guilt is a defilement of mind. Um, so the difference being with, with guilt, there is this sense of self, I am bad, I shouldn't be like this, I should be better than this. So it's all wrapped up with this, this idea of being somebody or not being who, you should be, who you'd like to be and so on. Whereas shame is, um, is focused on the mental state itself, seeing that that is an unwholesome mental state and not something to be promoted, not something to be encouraged, but something which you should seek to abandon. So it, it's a difference of focus between the, the the person and the and the the action or the event, and so the guilt is included in one of the five hindrances to meditation. So it's a serious um, problem, uh, but uh, hindering peace of mind and wisdom. Whereas a sense of shame is actually a very supportive factor and something which. Um, together with another uh, there's another virtue which is a, a pair with it which is an intelligent fear of consequences um, again it's not kind of a sort of paranoid or neurotic kind of fear um, but one which recognizes that if if I do something like this then there'll be these consequences it's better not to do that at all because I won't enjoy those consequences so th these these are these two Factors. This we're calling intelligent shame and intelligent fear are, are the two underpinnings for uh, the, this training of conduct. So, the anybody else? Is there a specific strategy for dealing with guilt? Um, I think to begin with, just that uh, that recognition of it as a defilement and I think commonly um, we hold on to guilt because we feel like it's somehow irresponsible not to feel guilty when you do something wrong you know it's like you're just getting away with it for free you know um, so uh, you know you do something bad and, and, and you feel bad about it I'm just so and somehow there's a kind of an indulgence in that as uh, yeah I'm getting my just rewards but if you can accept the idea that that's not exactly correct or wise and that it's possible to develop a sense of shame which is um, has an equally powerful deterrent effect but without those the, the, the negative consequences in terms of our our relationship with ourselves and just sort of um, putting too much on and uh, making too much out of our faults and failings. Yeah. Yes? Um, no, no, quite, uh, quite the contrary. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah I said the opposite. Yeah, those, um, those, those qualities are, um, say, uh, qualities in which there's a, a gradual 
maturation in the sense that um, to begin with um, you lose it a lot and you can do it and sometimes but then um, I, I would suggest that if you're applying um, you're, you're applying yourself to this training um, and particularly in the development of mindfulness awareness on a regular basis you begin to see improvements in those in those areas so it's not a sense of yeah there's you you should be this way and that's that's how a wise person is but what i think you can see is yes i can see that um i have a a lot better um awareness of you know the correct uh, means towards ends and bearing the goal in mind being a lot more um aware of my my blind spots and weak points and willing to to learn about them and so on and so forth so so they're more like kind of standards i would say rather than um, kind of how you should be and I think that there are things that by recollecting that they give us some, some sense of direction and grounding um, in, in our daily life and in our practice and, and have that sense of being stretched a little I think um, is really good you know the sense of doing something which is a little bit difficult yeah um, so it, 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 it's more a sense. It, um, it, there, there is a, a kind of extrapolation um, that that you can perform in the sense that you begin to see that um, when you're when you're calm and when uh, when your mind is is somewhat peaceful, you find that um, events, people. Um, things that go on which would formerly have really upset you or really uh, made you irritable or angry actually now you don't you know you feel okay with it and and from that you say well if with this level of calm if that there's that kind of reduction in the amount of anger in my mind well if I go another step further then it makes sense that there will be a further reduction of anger, and maybe there's a there's a um, a point further up the path where there'll be no anger at all. So if you see this this steady kind of decrease in certain negative qualities and a steady increase in others, even though it's it may be very minor or very mundane, then then you can extrapolate from that. You can say, yes, I can see where this is leading to. Uh, I think that's very um, empowering in, in meditation. Okay. Anybody else? May I ask Yes, of course. When he says the way you see things is colored by our vision, yes, I agree with that. But then it goes on. Seeing the ultimate truth means the readiness of our condition. I wonder if I could rid myself of all conditioning, I wouldn't see anything anymore. I mean, the very fact of seeing requires that you are conditioned to something. Now, of course, some conditioning is more sympathetic than other. If you are greedy, jealous, selfish, you can change your conditioning into not selfish, peaceful. Yeah. Is there any yeah. There's many conditions on the world as there are conditions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't. Th- I didn't write that, did I? No. Uh, I didn't write that, did I? Oh, okay. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> The, the, um, the, 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 the teaching which is common to all the Buddhist schools, um, we call the Four Noble Truths. The truths of Dukkha, uh, usually translated as suffering, the cause, the end, and the path to the end of suffering. Now, with each of those Noble Truths, um, there is... Um, a what we call a, a, a duty or a, a, a practice and the first noble truth of suffering is it's something to be known the second the, the cause of suffering is to be abandoned the third the end of suffering is to be realized and the path is to be followed okay or cultivated 
Now, conditioning uh, lies within the first noble truth. It's something to be known and something to be recognized. So recognizing conditioning as conditioning is basic practice. Now, there, in, in the practice uh, of abandonment of the cause of suffering, then all those mental states um, which are conditioned by defilement will gradually atrophy and eventually disappear. But there will be certain conditions uh, which are not directly um, uh, the consequence of, of negative mental states which will survive. So that's why if you, uh, if you were to talk with a, a Thai arahant, then they still, um, they still have certain cultural values certain things that uh, ways of looking at the world perhaps ideas about hierarchy or about relationship of men and women and things that that they picked up from their childhood from their environment um, and, and which are just part of their their world view um, which would be quite different from um, say an arahant born in another country or another culture for instance so the the conditioning which disappears is that which is directly a uh, result of um, ignorant or um, uh, defiled mental states, whereas those conditions which are neutral or not, then they, they will usually stay the same, unless for some reason there is a, um, an effort to educate oneself or to change one's view about something. But, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the end of all, all conditioning in that sense, I would say. No. Yeah. So, um, Ajahn Chah we talk about um, arahants or enlightened beings as by, like many different species of bird you know you said big birds and small birds and brightly colored birds and, and uh, um, you know, they're, they're all quite different um, in, their, in their colors and shapes but they're all recognizably birds so, that's the, so you have people who uh, realize uh, states of enlightenment and some of them can be very quiet and shy, others can be kind of outgoing and some of them very um, uh, charismatic and others not very charismatic at all. Um, so the, these kinds of um, uh, personality traits um, don't necessarily disappear. Do Peace of mind. It's, it's a little bit like good health. You know, you, you can often you can. How do you define like good health? You know, you say, well, you know, you know, aches and pains. You know, you don't have cancer or diabetes or or this or that. You, you end up talking about all the things that are not present. But to talk about um, good health. Um, physical health in, in a positive sense is rather is rather difficult um, and, and, and similarly with, with, with peace of mind well um, we can say that there are no hindrances in the mind the mind is not um, uh, distracted it's not moved by it's not uh, it's not the prey to negative emotions it's not um, unduly affected by circumstance it's it, it has a um, a stability, a brightness, a flexibility, um, a, a profundity which is independent of circumstance. That, that would be my answer.
Four Noble Truths. So you understand the first two? <laughs> well, let me just talk about, go through the four. Like, the first, first Noble Truth of Dukkha, um, uh, translated usually as, as suffering. Um, what, what that means is the um, inherent imperfection or the inherent unsatisfying nature of, of everything except for Nibbana. Now, now, it's important to say except for Nibbana because this is why we say, well, technically, uh, you could say even the mind that's experiencing the bliss of, of deep meditation um, is still suffering, not in the in the normal everyday sense, but in the sense that it is not yet nibbana. Um, so that which is not nibbana is suffering, and so that there's a spectrum from the sort of coarsest kind of suffering, like extreme physical pain, um, to quite uh, subtle, refined states of consciousness. This is to be observed, yes. The, the, this is to be um, understood, to be known, yes. Because there's not, not anything you can do about it. Um, now that, um, that sense of uh, the experience of dukkha is conditioned um, by ignorance. Now, um, ignorance meaning uh, not penetrating, not penetrating dukkha means that there is dukkha. Dukkha is there because you don't understand it, because you don't, you don't see it. Um, now, um, with, with ignorance, that, that ignorance is both not knowing the truth and a false knowing. So there, it, there's two, you know, it's not just that you don't know the truth, you have all kinds of uh, false understandings of truth. And, and together with that, the, the expression of ignorance is craving, or called tanha. And this is the, the aspect which is emphasized in the second noble truth. So it's the kind of desires that arise from ignorance. So if there are desires arising from wisdom, then that kind of desire is not considered a cause of suffering. So if, for instance, you, you see someone in pain and you want to help them, if you have a strong desire to, to, to help somebody, that wouldn't be considered um, like in the second noble truth, something to be abandoned on the opposite. It'd be part of the past. Um, so three kinds of craving. Uh, craving for sensual experience, particularly pleasant sensual experience, form, sound. Craving to become, to be, to go on being. And then the craving not to be or to get rid of. These are the three uh, expressions of ignorance. Um, so the Buddha says these are things to be abandoned. Okay. The third noble truth, the noble truth of, of Nibbana, is something to be experienced, um, something to be realized. And the fourth noble truth is the path towards Nibbana, and that's to be cultivated. That's the noble eightfold path, which can be condensed into this threefold training of Sila Samadhi Banya, which 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 I referred to. Yeah. So although the, the great difference between the different Buddhist schools, that, that teaching forms the core of, of all the, the Buddhist schools. Yeah. The Um, yes and no. I, um, as, I, as I tried to explain at the beginning, it, it's more these are eight kind of aspects of one thing, and that you can't just um, take certain elements and practice in isolation. You know, this is why if, if you take, say, just some Buddhist meditation technique and apply them, you know, you'll get a, quite an efficient stress reduction program, but it won't actually be um, you know, the Buddhist path necessarily if it's not um, firmly grounded in that context of the training of conduct 
and also development of, of wisdom and understanding. So the, 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 these, this training of external and internal training has to be, or education, has to be followed um, simultaneously in the same time. So the, in the time of the Buddha himself, the, there wasn't a word Buddhism. Uh, there, there was uh, the, the word was like the Dhamma Vinaya. So the Dhamma refers to all the teachings concerning this internal development, and the Vinaya, which these days most people um, know in terms of the Buddhist monks' code of discipline, actually refers to creating the optimum external conditions for the development of Dhamma. So they're considered to be, uh, you know, uh, one and the same thing. Mm. I don't think it's just modern society. It's 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 always been the human condition um, to escape from uh, pain. It's just we have much more um, ability to do that now than, than than people did in the past. Probably, I'm saying it's a good thing. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm certainly not in favour of uh, anaesthetic free operations for instance so you know I, I think there's you know I'm, I, I value modern dentistry and things like that so I mean it's not like no pain no gain but the, it's and in fact um, the Buddha had a number of uh, conversations with ascetics um, who had this idea you have to torment your body in order to free the mind and and it's only through uh, experience of pain that you really grow as a human being. The Buddha said no, um, that that's not the case. But if you have this just, uh, your basic sense is to deny and to escape from pain just as a as your basic kind of stance or relationship to, to life, then yes, you won't ever learn anything very much and you won't be able to do it anyway. But um, it's like a judicious amount of pain and learning from being just being willing to be patient with with just normal discomforts in life without having to look for anything really kind of big and terrible but it's like sitting meditation is you know you have a uh, quite a controlled environment in which you can look at pain and your habitual reaction to pain and how you deal with pain in a way that you can uh, you can withdraw from quite easily you know you can sit and decide to you start, your knees start to hurt, so okay, well, let's look at this for a while, 10, 15 minutes or whatever, and gradually develop a, a more, a wiser, more patient relationship to discomfort, which will then um, impact on your, on your daily life. Um, but one of the central paradoxes of, of, of Buddhist teaching is that to truly understand suffering, you have to be happy. Uh, only a happy mind is, has the, the strength and the stability and the interest um, to, to be able to look. If you're painful, if you're in pain, you know, you don't want any more pain. You don't want to look at pain, you know. So this is why samadhi um, is so important because it gives that, that very deep, stable sense of well-being which allows you to look at things that otherwise you might not want to look at. Um. Yeah. Because also in pain, many levels. Mm. 
Yes. Maybe some levels you can stand. Yeah. And maybe other levels you should escape. Huh? Yeah, sure. But suffering, so it's. What, what, which sense can we. Well, if it's like an equation, it's like pain multiplied by attachment equals suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the more attachment there is, then the more suffering. No attachment, and there's just pain and no suffering. Yeah. Hmm. That's why, I, I mean, I, I really prefer not to use that word at all because it's not really the best um, translation of, of dukkha, the word that the Buddha used. And um, because we, we, it's just too difficult for us to expand the meaning of that word to include the... It's a very um, wide-ranging and, and profound term. Um, and it's just, a, you know, one of the normal problems of translation that, um, you know, you either don't translate the word and maybe alienate people and say, what's this weird word, dukkha, or you use a word which is not really uh, encompassing the full meaning of it. But um, a, a one possible alternative would be, say, a lack of true happiness. And so life, the life of unenlightened people. So there's also this, you know, it's not life for that, you know, it's life, the unenlightened experience of life is characterized by a lack of true happiness. So that there's a recognition, yeah, there's, there's pleasure and there's happiness and there's fulfillment, but that it, it has a shadow to it um, and that it's not, uh, it's not perfect. Yes, it can be uh, good enough, you know, but that there is um, something beyond that, um, which is which can be can be realised, and and without um, having to necessarily, necessarily to discard all those kind of legitimate happinesses of of living a good life in the world and raising a family and and um, performing uh, good deeds and, and and so on and so forth. Um, so it's like an extra dimension rather than a rejection of of those kinds of normal happinesses which I hope all of you you know do experience um, so you know it's not saying you're not really happy you're just kidding yourself really it's just miserable you know wake up you know that, that's that's not really what, what Buddha is saying you know which is often what people think yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's a state. I mean, it's not a it's not a, a pleasant state, is it? Anguish. So we could, you know, consider that as to be uh, to be dukkha. I, I mean, interesting point though. Let's say just as an exercise, you know, we I have a f- favorite mental exercise of that, that I yeah, I imagine conversations with a man from Mars who just arrived. He doesn't know anything about our planet anything about and you have to explain various things you know why do we do it like this you know he said what what's this and what's that so let, let's just um for the sake of argument let's say our man from mars um, says okay uh, can you sum up your existence as a human being in one if you had to in one word what would be the one word that you would use to to sum up human existence <laughs> you can have that's your homework, and uh, that. Um, yeah. May I ask? Uh, this is just kind of um, a little wisdom. When you started learning Buddhism, you have different backgrounds, culture, and did you 
struggle that you can accept it. And uh, now I see you are really part with the positive, but I just wanted to know when you start learning, you say you're still young, and you're still struggling with different traditions, different mental beliefs. And I have the same questions. Still apply with the best of thinking, even after you go with the teaching in the after, but you just totally wiped out to the best of Well, um, you know, I, I grew up in um, middle class family in England was basically secular in the family. I, um, I, I, I found no connection at all with Christianity. I found it strange and uninspiring from the age of about eight years old. Um, so and, and for a number of years I, I just didn't think that religion was, was any way necessary to life. It, I mean, it just seemed I didn't think that believing in things was an answer to to life in the world. Um, in my teens, um, I I became very interested in questions of what my, the question I asked myself in age about fourteen or fifteen is: What's the best way to live? What's a good life? What's the best life? That was that was the thing that really inspired me to begin with, and then why is the world like this? Does it have to be such a miserable place, so full of suffering and cruelty and 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 wars and and so on and so forth? And uh, is there anything that? What's your responsibility uh, living in a world like this? What can you do as one person? So I, I started reading a lot, and. Um, Reading works of philosophy and psychology and literature, I, you know, I was a real uh, love to read from a child. And eventually, I came across uh, a book on Buddhism, and just immediately, there's this sense of well, obvious. It's just, it's just common sense. You know, it just made absolute sense to me. And it didn't seem in any way to be a kind of exotic Asian philosophy, but yeah, it's just. Obvious. That was how I felt. So um, then I was I was still at high school then. Um, so I, I finished high school and I I saved up. I worked on a building site, saved up some money, and then I went to India and ended up travelling around in India and, and for nearly two years. Um, and I came back to England. And I didn't want to do anything except study, practice Buddhism, but I didn't quite know how to go about it. Um, and then I went on a meditation retreat and the, ad, the teacher had been a monk in Thailand for a number of years and so hearing about the life of monks in Thailand I said, well yeah, that's what I've been looking for for the last two years so then I, I came to Thailand and, and I, I never wanted to do anything else ever since I, from the day I arrived here and, and that was in 1978. So, um, West. I don't know whether it'd be correct to distinguish Western ways of thinking and 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 Buddhist ways of thinking. There, there's an overlap. I mean, on the basic um, techniques of critical analytical thinking, there's a great deal of overlap. Although the particular areas of investigation uh, would differ. The um, I don't I don't think um, techniques of critical thinking, analytical thinking are um, are, are, are different or in particular. But when we're getting onto the to the um, high levels of uh, vipassana, which is which is no longer using the the thinking mind in the same way, then then those are only accessible to someone who's 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 practiced meditation to a certain degree. Um, Yeah. I, I think I still have a Western sense of humour. Then um, I think what then. Okay. Those words that you, you couldn't translate very easily. 
Yes. Yeah, Buddha was uh, was Indian. Uh, he he was uh, actually the uh, his birthplace is now uh, strictly speaking in in Nepal in the in the lowlands of of Nepal. Now the language that it, there is a certain amount of um, uh, disagreement on this, but basically the 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 language which we sp- he spoke was a language one of the languages spoken in the uh, the Ganges. Um, uh, Indo-Gangetic plain, northeastern India, 2,500 years ago, which has um, been preserved in uh, a, a language called Pali, which is closely related to Sanskrit. So, um, it's not really quite accurate, but you, but you could you could um, perhaps compare the relationship between Pali and Sanskrit as the relationship between everyday Italian and Latin of you know of, of former times, something like that. So it's a, and it was a, a Sanskrit was the language of the Brahmins and it was the language of the intellectuals and and the Buddha wanted to speak the language of everyday people. Um, but the just as the um, English languages English languages I don't know forty percent Latin based probably. Um, Thai language is, is something like 40-50% Pali and Sanskrit based. So you have a meeting of a Chinese tonal language and an and a Indian, um, Indian language. So <clears throat> this is one of the difficulties of learning Thai because there are all these Indian words imported into, into Thai have to correspond to the, the tonal, Thai tonal system. So you can actually be speaking or reading a lot of Pali-based words without, without realizing it, except if you, the spelling is a bit eccentric. Um, now, the difficulty for, for Westerners um, approaching Buddhist terminology is often as they're very strange and, and they have, they, there's no clear mapping of concepts from monotheistic religious traditions onto, onto Buddhism. So you have this this dilemma as a translator whether you borrow, say, Christian words and, and try to expand upon their meanings or explain, well, this is not exactly what you understand by faith, for instance, or, or so on, um, but it's, it's a Buddhist version. Or you keep the original in which people find kind of alien and difficult to understand. And so, you know, of these, of these words, dukkha is, and, and bunya, which is translated as merit, you know, are good examples of, you know, everybody realizes that they're, they're not really that good. But if you, if you read and you study Buddhist texts more and more, at a certain point where you, you, you just sort of inject your understanding of the terms into the words, and and then it becomes a lot, a lot easier. The difficulty for for Thai people studying Buddhism is that a lot of the um, technical terms, um, Buddhist technical terms, imported into Thai language have over the course of centuries um, changed in meaning, um, and often uh, many Thai people will not reckon, realize that. Um, monks um, giving talks are using words that they're very familiar with but in, in, with shades of meaning which they are not familiar with so, um, and some, it's a very interesting study in, in, in the, the ways in which words have changed their meaning some of them have completely um, uh, transformed uh, an example is the word mana in Pali which means conceit and a sense of oneself as being superior to another or, or on the same level or inferior. Um, and in, in modern Thai usage, um, that word is, is rather, is used to mean like to be diligent, hard-working, committed. So um, that, that's one example. And the word dukkha, um, similarly, in for, for most people who, who don't study Buddhism, then it has a similar meaning to talk, similar meaning to in, in English, you know, sort of gross kind of physical pain or suffering. So, um, at least as a, as a Westerner, when you, you meet 
these Buddhist technical terms, you're immediately aware that you don't really understand what they mean. The difficulty for, for Thai, Thai people is often is that they just assume that they know what they mean when uh, they don't necessarily. The word Sankara uh, has many, uh, many meanings, but in Thai Sankaran, which is the, the time, just means the body. Whereas in, um, in, in Pali it means the conditioning process or things that are conditioned or conditions. So if you hear the word conditions and understand it to mean body, you know, your, your understanding can be completely um, askew. Yeah, so a lot of these terms, it's, it's a whole different um, like way of looking at, at things. It, it's, it's something you, um, you have to very um, slowly kind of learn and absorb. Um, there's one downstairs. I, I mean, most most of the stuff I've written is in Thai, but there is there is a short, small book downstairs. I think you're welcome to. part in this, this effort to create what's called like a Buddhist education movement in Thailand to try to adapt Buddhist teachings uh, for children and to create a school system more, more firmly grounded in, in this Buddhist developmental ideas in the sense of a, um, an all-round development of the child both in terms of his uh, conduct, his relationship to the material world, relationship to the social world, uh, emotional development and intellectual and wisdom development um, and started off in uh, school in, in Bangkok, Torsi School and um, now we've just uh, recently opened uh, um, a boarding school a mile or so away from here and this is the uh, this is the headmaster over here. Who's, so this is kind of a, an ongoing thing to 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 develop some um, systems and, and structures to um, to pro- the, the the education system in in Thailand was for a very long time very successful. If you were a boy, not so good for girls, but the the levels of literacy. Um, say 200 years ago were far in advance of, of what they were in the West. Um, in the late 19th century the, um, the education system was turned over to the state. In fact, it was originally run by the monks in the monasteries. Okay? It was turned over to the state and for the last hundred or more years it's pretty well followed Western um, practices, Western standards, Western, and and so it, it's a kind of a poorly digested um, version of Western Western educational model, and um, it's not really, I don't think, worked very well. And so I, you know, I've always felt it's rather rather frustrating that 
we have a the religion of 90% of the people in this country is one which is in essence an education system it is the the supreme education system so why hasn't there been any effort to um, adapt this whole education system that the Buddha gave us in a way which is appropriate for for children and on a level which children can um, can benefit from the I think that um, in, in fact many the, the leading um, Buddhist scholar in this country Tanjakun Prayut from Kunaporn um, is um, very who's one of the pioneers in this and, and many years ago I, I, I went to see him and I said you know the, what I see as one of the problems in Thailand is that in the West exactly as you say okay for all of its faults you know you have like these like Ten Commandments or five you know and this okay you're a Christian you've got to accept the Ten Commandments and it's kind of very you know very clear cut whereas in, in Buddhism there are just so many teachings and it's so kind of diffuse that that people just don't quite know, you know, what does it really mean to be a Buddhist? Where does it start? What, you know, and so he, you know, he, I said, would it be possible for us to, to, to sort of condense some kind of major kind of Buddhist principles um, as something that could be um, promoted throughout the country for children, for families? It's just a kind of a, an orient, orientation, as it were. This is a basic kind of sense of a, what it means as a Buddhist identity, as it were, and um, and so he, uh, after that, he wrote one or two books, and and has been gradually working that, and then just last year he came with like sort of twelve twelve points, sort of like principles of uh, Buddhist principles for, so the idea to to try to propagate that and and to give a a, a kind of like a very easy. Um, point by point, you know, what are the basic things involved if you say you're a Buddhist because there's you know, so many people don't really, uh, can't really answer your question. If you ask yourself, okay, you're a Buddhist, what does that mean? What, what's it all about? You know, and, um, and people say, well, mm, do good thing, you know, be good, something like that, you know, and I say, yeah, well, uh, so I, when I was uh, abbot at this monastery in Bonn, you see the constant stream of Thai women bringing their Farang husbands, you know, he wants to know what Buddhism's about, you know, can you teach him, can you tell him, when you tell him yourself, you know, you, know, you, see, you, know um, you should be able to, you know, give at least a sort of a basic understanding, so, so there's a real problem of, of, of uh, you know, um, propagation and, and understanding of basic principles in this country and, and a failure of education system, really. Um, so I, I'm 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 interested in trying to do something about that. Yeah. That's what my book's about downstairs. So you, you, you can read my book. Yeah, um, well, there, there's not the word love as we use it in English covers, you know, covers a wine. You know, we use the word, you know, I love fish and chips, you know, to, you know, I love my mum, you know, they, we use the same, the same word. So it's a little bit kind of uh, diffuse. So in, in Buddhism, we're, um, we, we talk about very, very different kinds of love. And again, using that, that same kind of basic structure of that love which is, involves suffering and is based upon craving um, <clears throat> um, as being the sort of inferior kind of love. And then a, a selfless, um, uh, unconditioned kind of love as being the sort of the supreme or the, the, the highest level of love. And so the idea is that um, in the expression of love, we seek to educate our love and to move it away, move away from the more selfish, self-centered, conditioned 
um, uh, kind of love towards, um, as far as we can, towards the unconditioned um, and um, wide-ranging or, or um, uh, unbounded kind of love. So that 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 this supreme kind of love we call metta. This this the this which is a universal kind of love, um, and the more conditioned and 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 the more selfish kind of love, you know, is is uh, is called something else altogether. So it's a different way of talking about it. So the, there's not a um, there's not a rejection of love, but a recognition that, that there are many different expressions of love and something which can very easily uh, be a cause of suffering if we're not careful. But if, we, um, if we're wise and, and, and intelligent and we seek to train ourselves, then, then it can be a wonderful thing in, in people's lives. So, anyway, we can read the book downstairs, it's a little bit... Yeah. I was asked this question on, on the youth retreat last month and I had all these teenagers there and somebody asked me this very question after all this time is there one question that you still you still haven't got an answer for and I said yes I do the question is why is it that everyone agrees at the beginning of a retreat that they won't talk and yet everybody talks all the way through the retreat so I still haven't worked this one out have <laughs> I, I mean, um, uh, in terms of uh, intellectual understanding of, of, of Dhamma, I mean, I don't see any um, significant holes or, or gaps. But it's only a, an arahant who, you know, is, has answered all the questions experientially. And I was referring to Buddhism as an as a, um, education system. And, and one of the words that is used to describe the arahant is, is Aseka Pugala. So Aseka means a graduate, one who's finished the training, who has uh, no, nothing more to learn. So the idea is that everyone except the Arahant still has something to learn. Um, and, and I think, you know, the moment somebody says they, they've got it all worked out, then, you know, that, that's a dangerous um, position to adopt, I think. I think, yeah. Um, I think probably enough for this afternoon. I, I, I'm quite. I mean, I'm enjoying it myself. But I, I have um, some people waiting to see me. I'm planting some trees, so I, I think we'll be at the.